1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. We're going to follow the worksheet, and uh, so I hope that you'll have your, have your Bibles and follow with us. In the book Art of Plain Talk, the author says that good communication involves four principles. If you want to be a good communicator, there are four principles that you need to follow, basic principles. You might want to get this down. Prefer the familiar to the unfamiliar. Second, prefer the concrete to the abstract. Three, prefer the single word to the unnecessary verbiage. Prefer, fourth, the short word to the long one. Now, the, the one person who absolutely followed those basic principles to the T was Jesus Christ. He preferred the, the, the familiar to the unfamiliar, the concrete to the abstract, the single word to the unnecessary verbiage, and the short word to the long word. He, he decided one day that he would talk about the state of salvation, how to be saved, how, how to, um, to, he was going to communicate the idea of salvation. And they got their pencil sharpened and they got their um, uh, big chief pads and they expected this long discussion about salvation. And Jesus said, this is it, I am the door. If you want access to God, you come through me. Just simple and plain as that. And one day he wanted to talk about instability in life, about how the unstable man. And, and so they expected all of this discussion about physiological changes and pressures and stress. And all he said was, if you don't do what I tell you, it's like building your house on sand. When the storms come, it'll crash. He just followed those principles to the T. He was the master in the art of preaching and teaching with parables and word pictures and saw them when they heard him. They heard him gladly, the common people, and they said, no one has ever spoken like this man. The Apostle Paul was like that. Perhaps the most in intelligent man of his time, and yet when you read these epistles, it'll amaze you how many illustrations he uses and word pictures and, and uh, parabolic illustrations and metaphors that are just prevalent in his teaching. And in this passage that is before us tonight is the prime example of just taking the short way, just taking the common thing, the concrete, the familiar, and teaching a marvelous truth with it. And he's drawing three pictures of you Three pictures of you, three pictures of me. He draws a picture of you as a plant and the emphasis is upon uh, maturity. He draws a picture of you and me as a building and the emphasis is upon quality. And he draws a picture of you as a temple and the emphasis is on purity. Now I want us to take a look then at this word picture of you as a plant and follow with me in verse five. Who then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed 
even as the Lord gave to each one opportunity. Opportunity is in italics, not there in the original manuscript. It means God gave to each, that is, opportunity to be what they are. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Now he describes us, he pictures us, in two ways as he deals with maturity, as plants, some of the sowers. We're just the planters. It's well for us to remember those of us who are in places of leadership, teaching positions in the church, preaching. We're just planters. Now the Corinthians had made a grave mistake. They had made gods out of Paul and Apollos and Peter and had begun to worship them they had exalted them, they had uh, pedestaled them, and he's saying, we're just the planters, we're just the ones who sow, we're not the message, we're just the messengers of the message. It's important to remember that. The emphasis is not on getting the teacher and, and, and exalting the teacher and talking all the time about, man, what great teacher we have, and just... Uh, putting the focus and the emphasis there. The emphasis is not on the teacher. The emphasis is on that which is taught and that which is sown with the planters. We don't cause the growth. Somebody was telling me the other day, he said, what a, what a great garden he had. I said, well, what do you got in your garden? He said, well, I'm growing some tomatoes and okra. My ears perked up when he said okra. I'm growing tomatoes and okras. I thought, no, you're not growing them. You don't grow okra. And you don't grow tomatoes. You plant okra and you plant tomatoes. God grows okra. God grows tomatoes. I don't, know where, I don't know where these plants came from. I don't know who planted them, but I know who grew them. God grew them. Somebody else planted them. We're the planters, we're the sowers. He said, we're not in competition, Paul and Apostle and Peter, we're not in competition, we're partners in this thing. Now, if all you know about in this church is what is this pulpit ministry, if that's all you know about, you know, on Sunday morning, I preach to a lot of folks who come one time, that's on Sunday morning worship service. Most of them hear about once a week. And the only thing they know about is is this pulpit ministry that goes on here. If, you, if that's all you know about, you don't know about what, much about what's going on here. Somebody's telling me the other day about one of their classes. Somebody gotten sick, asked me to go by and visit that lady. When I went by to visit her, I found out this class had been ministering to her. One had taken her to the doctor. Some had brought in food. Others had cared for her in a special way. They'd been doing it for weeks and were still doing it, doing it tonight, caring for this lady. And I thought to myself, that's what really goes on. We're just partners together in this operation. We're, it's like the guard and the forward of the basketball team. We're all moving toward the goal, and that is that there'll be uh, growth. Well, let's imagine, I don't know if I can illustrate so we can all understand it, using this, the concrete as opposed to the abstract. Let's suppose you and I are going to take a safari, a big game hunt into Africa. 
Greg and I are going over to Africa. We're going to do a big game hunt over there. So we fly over there and land in Africa somewhere. What's the first thing we're going to do when we get there? We, we know absolutely nothing about hunting wild game, don't know where they are, how to get there. What are we going to do when we get there? Somebody answer. What's the first person we're going to look for? That's the right word. We're going to find us a guide. We're going to get the guy that's going to show us where the wild game is found. They're going to take us there, equip us, get us there. And we get out there and there are these big um, elephants, let's just imagine. We got all our artillery and our, our, everything we need and we bag us an elephant or shoot one. And what a trophy. And we come back to the United States and I, you know, you, you, you're on the big game hunt. You come back from, from, from America to the United States and all you bring back are pictures of your guide. I mean eight by tens and, and slides. And you got slides of your guide, you know, in every kind of pose. And, and, and you're going to show all your friends your big game hunt into the heart of Africa. And it's 2,900 slides of your guide. You won't, you're not going to do that. You're going to show 2,900 slides of the elephants you bagged in that, that, that big game hunt. Nobody's going to bring home pictures of the guide. I mean, you may have one slide of him, but... You're not going to, that's not going to be the focus of what you're there and about. Nobody brings their guide home and takes him to the taxidermist. You know, says, would you mount his head? I want to put it up in my living room. What you do is you go bring back that elephant head. You're going to take that to the taxidermist. Everybody comes in your house, you're going to say, look at there what I begged over there on my big game hunt in Africa. Now the guide was a significant part of the trip, but he was a transitory part of the trip. You went there to hunt big game the real focus of what the church is about. And that's what he's driving home in this 1 Corinthian letter with all these cliques that had developed. The real emphasis there is not upon the guide. The emphasis is upon the, the, the planting that guide does and the message that guide preaches. Now he says, if you're not the sower, then you're the soil, you're the field. Man, you can run. That thing explodes in my mind. You're his field. You can say all kinds of things about that. You, 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 can, you can just imagine what you are. You're God's field. You know what that says to me? It says God wants to produce something in your life. He wants to grow his son there. He wants to grow his grace there. He wants to grow his forgiveness out of your life. He wants to grow his mercy out of your life. He wants to grow something there. And if you're God's field, he's going to cultivate that. There are going to be times when he's going to plow into your life deep furrows and break up the fallow ground and the hardness. And he's going to cause tears to flow to water that. He's going to cultivate you. And if you're God's field, he doesn't produce the crop overnight. There's going to be a long process of God building into you that which he wants to produce in your life. I was talking to a young man the other day who was really struggling with his call to the ministry. He's pastoring a church now, and he's, uh, it's difficult for him, and he's thinking about resigning his church because nothing's happening there. I say, wait a minute. God may work in your life 20 years to produce one year of ministry that's effective. I have this absolute conviction that everything that has gone on in my life up to five years ago was preparatory to my coming here. 
I believe it. Everything that God was doing was preparatory to the ministry I'm having here at, uh, at, at Duran, Oklahoma. He wants to produce in us. We're just a field. What else does it mean? It means that you must make yourself available to the sower. That is, to God and to, and to be teachable to those that God has chosen to do the planting. Make yourself just a field, teachable and available to Him. All right, second, you're God's building. Now the emphasis is on the quality. Look at verse 10. That's why he says, be careful how, underline how, you build. When you go to look for a building, you're going you're to consider quality. How is it constructed? Uh, what material has gone into this building? Now there's a past and a present and a, and, a, and a testing. The past has to do with foundation. Read with me verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. Now watch this. If Jesus Christ does not live in your life, you have no foundation. There is no foundation. There is no other foundation that can be laid than this. That is Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus Christ is not living in your life, you have no foundation. That's the beginning point. Everything must be built upon Him. Now, some people build on, you know, on human effort, upon good, good deeds, good works. There's is a work mentality, work ethic, work faith. Some build upon um, baptism, learning how to genuflect at the right time. If you, have, if you have not Jesus Christ living in your life, you, you, you've lost, you missed the whole foundation. No other foundation but Him. Now, how are, you, how are you coming along in the construction? There's been a foundation. Jesus Christ is living in your life. What, what about the construction? You've heard the much traveled uh, story by James Markin of the, of the contractor. The builder came to him one day and said, I want you to build this house. Here are, the, here are the, the specifications. Here's the money it'll take to build it. And the builder left and the contractor built the house. He got the shoddiest material he could buy, find. Cheapest wood, cheapest lumber, cheap foundation, cheap plumbing, he just put the shoddiest stuff he could get into that building, pocketed the money. When the builder came back, handed him the keys and said, you didn't know this, but that's your house. And the moral of that story is this. When you embezzle your life from God, you have to settle with what you've stolen. You have to settle on what you've stolen. You have to live there. Now, what are you putting into your life? He said some people can put into their lives gold, silver, and precious jewels. Some folks put into their life wood, hay, and stubble. Look at it in verse 12. But he said the wood, hay, and stubble will not stand the test. The gold and silver and precious stones. He's talking about building into your life the qualities, the things that will stand the test, the things that have durability, the things that have uh, the, the ability to stand the fire. 
How, what are you putting into your life? I told the guys on Friday noon lunch and Bible study about the idea that comes to my mind when I hear this. I, I, I envision this gigantic dump truck, you know, backing up to heaven, heaven's gate or somewhere, backing up to the bema, the throne, has my name on it, Tidwell, comma, Gerald W. And he's kind of raised that dump truck up and that all that stuff of my life just comes out in one big pile there by the throne. All the stuff of my life. And just envision, in my mind I can just see the Lord stepping down from the bema, from the throne. And he just kind of sifts through the stuff of my life. And he says, that's wood, and that's hay, and that's stubble. And, and then he might say, well, here's a piece of gold, and here's a silver bar, and here's a precious stone. And, and I, I, just, I just imagine that the wood, hay, and stubble pile is going to be a lot bigger. I, I just wonder how, how, how far he has to look to find a stone, a jewel, What's going into your life? I mean, when the, when the Lord sifts through it all, what is it that's just going to disintegrate, is going to just evaporate in a puff of smoke, that which is really not that important? And there will be a test. And he says it in verse 14. Look at that. It says, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. Now what if I build my life into my life worthy things? Well, I'll get, I'll re, I'm, I'm rewarded for that. It doesn't, it, it doesn't mean at all that I get to stay in heaven. It has nothing to do with that. It means I get a reward. I'm rewarded for it. I don't understand that. But I, I just accept it. I, I don't know the whole idea about rewards in heaven, but I, I know it, talk, it, it tells about it. I think it must be kind of like this. I, I, I love music, but I can't read it, and sometimes I can carry a tune, sometimes I can't. Well, I love it. With my capacity, I appreciate it as much as I can, but I don't know that much about it. But, but, but if there's a person, you know, who who has spent his lifetime studying it and, 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 and listening to it and, 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 and developing the capacity for it, he has a greater capacity to appreciate than I do. I think that must be kind of what it's like in heaven, that, that, that we have this larger capacity perhaps than some have than, than others. Maybe that's what he's talking about, rewards. I don't really understand, but, but I know that if I build into my life the quality of those things that are valuable as God deems them valuable, I'm going to be rewarded for it. But if I don't, verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire... I mean, he's going to be saved by the skin of his teeth, but his works will be consumed. No reward. He has no reward. Now, which, which is the best? The better? I mean, that's not hard to figure out. I mean, you go to Monday High School, you still figure that out. Uh, it's better to put 
gold, silver, and precious jewels into it. Now, third, we're going to get down into some heavy stuff here, and I want you to put on your seat belt. Watch this. Temple. Do you not know that you're the temple? Look at this, verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? The Greek word is naos. It doesn't mean temple building, outside building. It means the sanctuary of God. It's the inner part of the temple where the, where the tablets of stone were, where the showbread was, and the Ark of the Covenant, the inner part, and the Jews knew the word, naos, and, and, and latched onto it immediately. You're where God himself dwells. God no longer dwells in a temple that Solomon built. He dwells in you. You're the living building of God, the temple of God. Now, what if a man, what if a man brings filth into the temple? Look here. If any man destroys the temple of God, somebody, somebody said, well, that's talking about suicide. It's not talking about suicide. He's talking about bringing, desecrating this temple of God. He says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Not holy, but the temple of God. The temple of God is holy, and God will destroy the man who desecrates it. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about maximum divine discipline. You see, God has the option. If you desecrate, if you violate his temple, he has the option to destroy you. Maximum divine discipline. Only, would you listen carefully? Only God knows how many deaths of Christians are divine discipline. When he says you are to be holy, he means it. I want you to look at a verse of scripture with me. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, now, this, this epistle was written to Christians. Don't miss that part. It's important. These are God's people. He's not talking to lost people. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God. He shall ask, and God will give for him, will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. There is a sin leading to death. The first sermon John Bassanio preached at Falls Creek this year was the 
was a sermon on the five places in the Bible where God will, I mean, he just used the word kill a man. And he talked about that ultimate, maximum, divine discipline that God has the prerogative to exercise and destroy the man. Now, there's a lot of frivolous teaching concerning sin. I, I hear people say all the time, well, listen, God forgives us when we sin. I mean, God loves us just like a father loves his children, and God's not going to, you, you're not going to, um, do anything drastic when your children do wrong. God loves, loves us. That's true. But let me tell you what. Do you think that there is automatic forgiveness for sin when sin grieves the Holy Spirit? Do you think there is automatic forgiveness of sin if we don't feel toward that sin like the Holy Spirit feels toward it? I don't think there is automatic forgiveness. I think it's harder to forgive sin than we like to, admit, to imagine. This temple, this life, this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and God says, keep it holy and he means what he says. A few years ago and at the uh, nuclear uh, testing facility in Knoxville, Tennessee, something happened in one of the reactors and one-fiftieth one-fiftieth of an ounce. You might have, yeah, how much that would be? One-fiftieth of an ounce of plutonium escaped. And this was what happened when that happened. Everyone in, that, in the area of that nuclear reactor had to turn in his clothes and they were destroyed. And every workman was tested to see if he had been contaminated by that radioactive material. Every building was washed with a hot detergent. The roof was taken off the building and destroyed. The sod in the lawn around the building was taken up and, and, and dug, dug out of the ground a foot deep and taken up and removed out into the country and buried. And the surface on the roads a hundred yards out from the nuclear building was chipped up a foot deep. And every single inch of that building was stripped and repainted because of one-fiftieth of an ounce of plutonium. If there's one sin in our lives, it violates the temple of God and grieves the Holy Spirit and it is serious business to God. Now you're his plant, his field. 
the emphasis is on maturity. God wants to produce something in you. And this cultivating that He's doing in your life is just God's way of bringing maturity. You're the building of God. The emphasis on quality. And so God gives us good advice, good directions about what to put into the building. You're the temple of God and you're to be pure. And I Pray with me. Father, in just clear, defined, understandable terms, you make your word alive. Help us to obey it. Because I pray in Jesus' name, ask it. For his sake. Now there are three invitations that we offer in the church. The first invitation is for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is no greater sin. There is no unpardonable for unforgiven, unforgivable sin except the sin of rejecting Jesus. Have you accepted Jesus into your life? Would you accept Christ tonight? Accepting Jesus means that I accept not only Him, but His way. Second invitation for you to join the church. As God has led you, impressed you, put your life here. A promise of letter, whatever, however we receive a member into our fellowship or to rededicate yourself to Christ confessing that sin cleansing or renewal we're going to sing two stanzas that'll be it we invite you to come while we sing stand and come